I'm reminded of uh, an early recollection of Hoffman, I suppose when I was about eight. Mm -hmm. I was in the shop and he he was there with his green baize apron. And yeah. at the back, I don't know whether you remember Jimmy, he had these uh, tapes which tied it together, which That's were very right, yeah. long. Yeah, yeah. And I, rather <laughs> mischievously, came up yeah. behind him and I tugged at these tapes and yeah. he turned around to me, his spectacles on the tip yeah. of his nose, he says, the Tales of Hoffman. <laughs> My father was there at the time, he roared with laughter, but I didn't, of course, understand what he yeah. was talking about. Yeah. And, and of course, it's the Barfaroy, oh, the famous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Remember that tune? Yeah. yeah. You want to play it? There's a picture in the big room inside uh, of August Wilhelmi. Um, August Wilhelmi went into Minels in London to have Willie's father sent to Dublin to look after Adolf, who is August's son. His son was coming to teach in the academy and August Wilhelmi wanted Willie's father there to look after his instruments. So Willie's father arrived the 15th of August 1906. In sentimental terms, which Eastern Europeans are, it was a lashing wet day, supposed to be our summer, and it was the poor man's birthday into the bargain, and he felt miserable, and he said, I'll give it a year, <laughs> in his own mind. And he got himself a workshop across the road from Westland Road Station, so that work could be sent from Minels in London to keep him working in Dublin. 
and he, this would arrive on a Monday morning and was posted back on Saturday. And the new box arrived on the following Monday morning. And that kept Willie's father going for the first few years till things got established. Then that continued till the 1418 war. And Charlie Minel was sent over to Dublin to keep the shop going while Willie's father was interned because he was German and we were under British rule at that stage. And he was there until 1918. And he came back to work in the shop as Minels, and a few years later, Willie's father was made a partner. In that time, old Mr Hoffman worked all the time on his own, and he had a marvellous business going. He had all the, the convents around the country, and the ledgers, the old ledgers there. There's not a town in Ireland that had a convent that wasn't one of his clients. Well, I remember Willie's dad, Mr Hoffman, in Lincoln Place. And when I was about five years of age, my aunt brought me in to get my first violin there. And I was overawed with the um, collection of instruments hanging up in these lovely display cabinets. I'd never seen anything quite like it in my whole life. And uh, Mr Hoffman, I remember a bald man with steel-rimmed glasses and this green apron, and he would come out. Man, a few words. I don't know how he much English at the time, but I probably didn't utter a word at that age. And he would take down a couple of violins, and he'd measure you by your arm and that kind of thing. And I remember getting my first one there, and then maybe two years later I needed to move to a slightly bigger one, and you'd arrive, and he would measure you again, and he would, you'd be looking forward to your next instrument. And then he might say... Um, we need to wait for another three, four, five months or whatever before you would move on to the next one and you would be really disappointed. But um, he was a lovely man. I don't think I was ever privileged with being brought in to, to have an instrument. I probably got one handed down somewhere along the way. But I had been in the shop quite often. You'd be amazed, standing in awe, looking at the instruments hanging on the wall and Willie's dad then working away. Before the war, Willie and his mother and father used to pack up a big trunk and off they'd go for a month. They did that every second year, from the time he was a very small child until the year before the war broke out. And then, of course, when the war broke out, there was no going back. And after the war, when Germany was divided, he couldn't go back because his family were on the east side. And that Willie and I went over when the wall came down and we had the opportunity because Willie was a member of the Entente um, de Lugier, uh, violin makers and bow makers. And he was asked, did he have any instruments that his father had made, because his father was from Mark Nekirchen, that he had made after he had left a home. So Willie had a few and he was asked, would he put one in to this exhibition? So I said to Willie, why don't we go? And it was a wonderful experience. And I can remember the day we were walking up the shady side of the street to get out of the sun. And Willie said, my grandmother's house is up here if we turn right. And there's a, a base maker living in that house now. Or there was then. That's a few years back. 
but he was very pleased to see it. But he wouldn't let me knock on the door because Willie had had to sign away his part ownership of that house when under communist rule because they had put people into the house and his two cousins who lived in Switzerland at that stage, two elderly ladies, uh, they had to do the same. And that's so that broke the connection. I played the fiddle as a youngster in the School of Music and my father brought me to Willie's workshop to get a new E-string and I, uh, out in Sydenham Road in Ballsbridge and I, um, and I met Willie there for the first time when I was, I suppose, about 10 or 11 years old. And then I asked him for an apprenticeship when I was... I, I, I liked the setup and I liked fiddles and I was a very, very badly failed fiddle player even at the, end, uh, at the age of 11 and uh, I asked him for an apprenticeship then. Um, when I was about 14, when I was in secondary school, and I was refused, he told me to go back and do my leading cert. I suppose I didn't want to do anything else as much as anything else. I, I wanted to make instruments, and so I applied for an apprenticeship to a harp maker and to a guitar maker and then to an organ builder as well as, as Willie, but I, I, was, I kept coming back to fiddles, and eventually he pointed me in the direction of a, of a college to, to go and learn, after I'd done my leaving certificate, uh, to study violin making in a college in Cork. And uh, that's how I got into it. So then after, when I came back from Cork, I, uh, I did outwork for Willie for, for several years. In, I had a workshop in, in Dunleary and I did a lot of work for Willie uh, on, on his instruments, on, on customers' instruments, on big repairs that, that he just simply didn't have time to do. And that was really when my training with Willie, so to speak, happened that uh, I did so much work that had to be repeated and gone over and got right that I think that was a good fundamental training and how to set up a fiddle and how to smooth the fingerboard and cut a neck to a nice shape and make pegs work and do the basics to, that are required of, of, of setting up old fiddles. scene in Dublin, if we go back to my school days, uh, it was very, very active. My father would be playing in the theatre Monday to Saturday. Sunday night was off, but people would gather in each other's houses and you might have a session of chamber music and Beethoven and Bach and so on. So the music scene was extremely strong. There were amateur orchestras around, like the Dublin Orchestral Players and so on. And then later stage came along the Radio Airden Orchestras. So the scene was very, very active indeed.
The orchestras of the 20s and 30s are remembered by Dermot Murnahan. You know, I was 17. 17. 17 it was through the picture houses. Mr. Oh, Schofield yes, played, and my mother was one yeah. of the first pianists in Dublin in yeah. cinemas. In one of the picture houses. Yes, and that's where I met Mr. Schofield. He'd just sit beside him and fill his yeah. pipe and turn yeah. over for him and all that. And well, it, it, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be nice to hear what the music sounded like at some stage. You know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the were huge parts, weren't they? Oh, you, we used to play. You played everything. You played the, uh, the <laughs> Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on a trio and done that. Ridiculous, really. The, uh, well, that was in the days of the silent pictures. Silent pictures, pictures yes. Yeah. yes. You I, I finished up in the Grand Central. I was the last uh, cellist in the Grand Central with J.J. Farrell. And um, then, as you know, I was the last in the Abbey Theatre mm -hmm. here, I was the last in the Olympia, yeah. and I was the last in the Gate. Well, so the, the talkies, of course, put, That's what put, put the cinemas out of business, yes. but they didn't put the Abbey out of business. They no. just decided that... Well, I was at the end of the Abbey I was there, yeah, after yes. yeah. Winnie Rankin left us. Yeah. I did the last year there. Yeah. What about uh, the uh, cafe orchestras? They yeah, I played were... in uh, Wynn's Hotel and yeah. uh, Frascati's, that was in Suffolk mm -hmm. Street. I played there with, with May Young. Mm -hmm. Uh, very pleasant times there. It was all light music, the same as the picture has. Well, the sort of Metzler trio. Uh, uh, but did you use a trio or, or a trio a, most of the time? Most yes. Piano, fiddle, cello. So, ah, yes. Because Lang used to play the fiddle in, in uh, yeah. Winds. Mm -hmm. That was Carmel Lang's mother. Night time when he'd be finished his job, uh, Willie would. Uh, he played in the theatre orchestras. Um, he was in the Gaiety, he was in the Royal, he was in the Olympia. And he played. The double bass, I think, in most of them. I think he was in the capsule as well. He started on the violin and he changed the viola. And the viola was the love of his life. And then the double bass. I don't know an awful lot about his, his uh, being a musician, except that he it was a part of his life that he obviously really enjoyed. It had various fringe benefits as well in that he always had a tuxedo in his workshop which meant that he was always available to go dancing which he loved and women uh, apparently would uh, f frequently uh, pop into the workshop and ask him would he go to the Gresham that night because they didn't have a partner so he always had a clean tux uh, which was very useful in that respect but he preferred playing the bass I think in general our bass players were, were better paid because they had to stand up in the pit and uh, had to be seen, so they always had to have a, a laundered collar, so they were given a daily allowance to have their collar laundered. Um, but the downside of that was that they couldn't nip out for a pint during the rests, uh, particularly important when they were playing the gaiety, because they'd, he uh, he used to talk about uh, popping out for a pint at the rests um, in the gaiety and popping out to Neary's for a pint and then running back in again. Somebody would be set to tell them when they were back on, and they'd rush back in again and... Um, and, and start playing again. So if you're the double bass player, you're stuck because you couldn't go. But And one time they came back and found the double play, bass player had died wrapped around his double bass standing there in the pit, <laughs> which uh, Willie thought was hilarious. <laughs> he lost a customer, but it was worth it. <laughs> We shall now take the case of James Phelan Plummer versus Mrs. Mulligan Widow for breach of promise. Call the plaintiff. Mrs. Mulligan. Mrs. Mulligan. Mrs. Mulligan. Ah, but where would you see a fine woman like me? Billy Mulligan, the pride of the coop. Me boys, Billy Mulligan, the pride of the coop. Oh, silence, woman. Silence. Quiet, please. Ah, how are you, Judge? Put it there. It's a long time since I've seen you. You're looking smashing. Did you get over your operation? Be quiet, please. I'm only talking to this gent here. Pardon yourself. All the time while he was while he was violin making, it was difficult, I think, for Willie because 
he came to an age when when he should have been training properly just after the second world war and germany where he his, his grandmother on his father's side was uh, of the glacial family and they were a very big violin making family they had factories they, they they made produced a lot of those trade fiddles that you see and um he was supposed to willie was supposed to go and serve his time to glacial or to one of the glacials to the, to that workshop and his father decided that Germany was no place for a youngster in 1947 and held him back. And so Willie never actually got a formal training in Germany, which is what, what would, which would have been uh, very useful for him to have got away from underneath the family roof, if you like, and, and uh, to have got other eyes looking at his work. But uh, Willie had a, had a very good training with his father, as good really as, as most, most any workshop in the world at the, at the time. Well, I had the greatest trust in Willie, I mean, I have a lovely hill violin that um, my father bought for me when I was about 15 years of age and I have it to this day and my daughter plays it and it's the most beautiful instrument. If Willie had to do any repairs or anything, small cracks or anything like that, he would take the belly off a violin and you would have it in two pieces. And if anybody came in that didn't know very much about instruments and they came in and they saw the violin in two parts, they'd say, my goodness, that's in bits. But really that was quite normal because you had to open it like that to repair cracks from the inside at times and it would all be put back together good as new. So that was never a major problem. But I would have the great, I always had the greatest faith in Willie. He could do absolutely anything because, I mean, you had to trust somebody because string players and a lot of violinists, we wouldn't really know very much about repairs at all. So we had to entrust everything to Willie and hopefully it would get back and sound the same as it had before he opened it up, and which it always did, of course. It's a very personal relationship, really, you know, and you think that you're the most important person, you know, and you're the only one going along, but everybody else is in the same position, you know. But he always treated you as if you were the only person, you know. At one stage, Willie told me a story about my father, which I hadn't known, that... Every Holy Week, my father would appear at the shop with this cello, which was in for its annual uh, overhaul, smoothing down of the fingerboard for the, to repair all the wear and tear on it during the year. Now, the reason for this was very, very simple, that this was the only week in the year that the uh, theatres were shut. So the cello did actually have to go on its annual retreat. He did enjoy his work. In fact... When we got married first, he explained to me we wouldn't be able to take long holidays. We couldn't go for longer than a week because he missed the feeling of the wood in his fingers. And after, when I left the bank and I took up furniture restoration, I got to have an idea of what he meant because I can stroke wood now and feel the different layers in it. You know, it's... um, it's just that sensitivity in the in the fingers. But gradually he learned to extend the holidays to 10 days and nearly a fortnight. <laughs> that. But that's the way it just was. Oh, I well remember that Willie always had a, a great eye for an instrument and he came across a violin which needed a lot of work and he thought had great potential. When he told his dad about this, his dad had no interest whatever in this violin. So Willie, unbeknownst to the dad, actually did a restoration job on it. 
And years later, the dad came across it and was enthusiastic about it and sort of asked Willie, where did this come from? And Willie told him, well, actually, uh, that was the fiddle that you weren't interested in and I fixed up. But it's interesting because Willie was very proud of his father and one of his treasured possessions was uh, a cello which his dad had made and uh, Willie had got. And he, he really loved this cello and wouldn't part with it for anything. I first started playing the cello after my grandfather had passed away and I was 12 when I started playing so I was big enough to play on a full-size cello so the first cello I ever played was my grandfather's cello which would have been well known to the Hoffmans. Well I can't remember a time when I didn't know Willie or Mr Hoffman as, um, as I always knew him as really because I met him when I was terribly young and then when I started playing the cello, it was just a, a relationship that evolved out. And certainly in the last few years, he would have, I would have regarded him as a very, as a good friend, as a kind of an uncle figure who was always wonderful to talk to about instruments and any musical problems, but also about everything under the sun. He was a great, witty, terrific, terrific man to talk to. I suppose it's a very nice thing to see a workshop that has tools in it that could have been used by a fiddle maker 300 years ago. And when Willie's father moved to Dublin, they, they stocked the workshop with tools uh, from a catalogue. I actually have a copy of, of, of uh, in a book, I found a copy of the catalogue with the entire set of tools in it. And uh, Willie used those tools all the time, um, right up until when he died. And uh, I used those tools, of course, when I worked with Willie. And there was a great, uh, not to be over-romantic about it, but there's a great feeling from old tools, particularly tools that have worked all their lives. They're, they, they haven't been resurrected They uh, from a junk shop, you know. They're, they're lovely tools. And uh, so there was that uh, feeling of, of um, an old workshop, first of all. And I suppose Willie had his own working ways. Now, when he was in Sydenham Road... There were fiddles absolutely everywhere. I mean, it was a five-bedroom house and three of the bedrooms were full of fiddles and the bathroom was full of fiddles and they had a board over the bath on which they kept five cellos. You know, it was that... The, the amount of instruments there was, was astonishing. So the amount of dust and fiddles lying around was always fantastic to, to a fiddle maker when you were interested in fiddles. It was like going into an Aladdin's cave of tools and fiddles. He loved uh, Irish fiddles. He loved old Irish fiddles. He had a great collection of of old Irish fiddles, some of the very nicest ones uh, that I'd ever seen. He'd, he had two fantastic Perry fiddles, a red one and a, and a, and a, and a yellow one. Um, not the little kind of brown square-shouldered Perrys of, that most of them are, but these were 
Amati pattern fiddles and they were very very nice and then he had a, a couple of Macintosh fiddles that were lovely and um, he also had well he had all sorts he had Guyton fiddles from Cork and uh, a Guyton viola which is a lovely lovely viola and he had an amazing collection of broken up old English and Irish fiddles that were just beyond repair or in those days certainly beyond repair and nowadays uh, largely of, of no great use except as examples of the maker's work he loved those instruments and he knew an awful lot about them an extraordinary amount about them he in fact Willie was very 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 knowledgeable by any standards about fiddles he really knew a lot about fiddles he really did know quite a lot about instruments and he loved them he, he particularly loved Irish fiddles I remember the Girl Guides one year did HMS Pinafore in the Archbishop Burn Hall and Willie was playing the viola and I was playing the cello and Noreen O'Neill was the other cello well she was the lead cello I was the number two, three, four, whatever and in the middle of something my D-string whang, broke and I looked at Noreen and I looked at Willie and shifted in the positions, carried on. And at the interval, Willie's dad came up and said to Willie, fix her cello, fix the string. So he tied a knot in it. Lucky enough, there was enough string to tie a knot in it so as I could carry on. Because I, I, I wasn't all that efficient because I wasn't that long playing the cello. So that got me over the hump. We lost touch with each other and then we met up again and lost touch. And we were fortunate enough to meet up again in the spring of 1977. And um, we got married in the November. Well, I mean, we knew each other. Yeah. And we could always sort of uh, start a conversation in the middle. Like, I remember meeting him in 1977. And I looked at him and said, I like the beard. And I hadn't seen him for years at that stage. Ah, he said, I got lazy and couldn't be bothered shaving. And that, well, I said, it's nicely trimmed and groomed and that, you know. And uh, it was that easy relationship. You know, it was great being friends. And that, and we had a great time. And we managed, despite his awful illness, we achieved 25 years. This is one of the instruments. How many did your father make when he was here? About, about 18 About 18. About 18. And this was the first. When was the last made? In 1940. Uh-huh. Do you know where they are, at the, any of them are at the moment? Or I know where most, most of, them of them are. Most of them are. You keep a record as to who I, has them, I I try to keep a line on them all. I know. 
I I know that the I know that the last one is somewhere in the north of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, last time I saw it was in pieces. It was being repaired, was it? No, no it, it just got broken. It, it just got damp and it fell into pieces. He made one, and he was so disgusted with what he did that he said, "No, it's not for me. I'll do the repairs," and left it at that. But his his father and his uncles made fiddles. In fact, his uncle Philip made a lot of fiddles and they were posted over to him because there you'll still get a Philip Hoffman a violin somewhere around Dublin. This fiddle, uh, yeah, it was made by Philip Hoffman probably in the 40s and 50s. You can see the brand mark there, that's Philip Hoffman. These were imported. Uh, Willie and Willie's father brought these in from his brother, unlabeled, and... I think some of them were varnished, uh, varnished in, uh, in Ireland, but I'm not sure about that. And there were two grades. There were the number ones and number twos. And the number ones were spirit varnished and the number twos were oil varnished. And this is one of the oil varnished fiddles, which would have been quite a lot more expensive than the spirit varnished fiddles. Yeah, and as I say, these things were brought in unlabeled because at the time, I think there was, there was some sort of a law against selling uh, articles made by members of your family abroad and there was also a, a, a law about selling anything that could be produced in Ireland after the war you know there, there was in an effort to support home industries they um, banned the, the import of anything that could be made in the country so these were brought in unlabeled as, as trade fiddles and then labelled in Ireland and there were boxes of labels there and they were just stuck in by Willie's father didn't um, see him for a great number of years even though I always knew of him I, I actually met him over my mother's house um, a few times a couple of times maybe in the 25 or 30 years that, that's missing my daughter then who who plays the violin and I suppose wanted to get into various other areas of, of music was, was looking for an electric violin and she didn't particularly like the ones that were available off the shelf. So um, she asked me, would I not make one? And I said, well, the only person that can tell me anything about making electric violence, or even violence for that matter, would be Willie. So I went out to him in his workshop, which was at that time in Greystones. And uh, I told him what I was thinking of doing, and he 
looked at me over his glasses and under his glasses and sideways out of his glasses and got out a piece of paper, probably a cigarette packet or something like that, and wrote down a few measurements and he just handed it to me and told me to go home and make it myself. So I did. And he got uh, pleasantly interested then in what I was doing and the alternative materials that I was using. And I suppose really he, he found it exhilarating to be, I suppose maybe being asked to get into this. Not not that he was into it, but certainly anything that I asked him about from boiler making, he supplied me with the information. Well, I suppose really what Willie thought of was similar to what I thought, like that it was important to play all sorts of music, especially if it was what you wanted to play, not what other people wanted to play or listen to. So he, he you know, I wouldn't say that he'd sit down and listen to Pink Floyd now or some of those, but, you know, he, he understood like that there was music there for everybody. Willie always took out a subscription to the Fesh Cure, and when he lived in Sydenham Road, and even when he was in Lincoln Place, and he tried to do it when we were down here in Kilpedra, uh, he went up to the Fesh, because the way he looked at it was... It was to see the next generation of uh, musicians. He would be always there for the junior ones, then he'd be there for the senior ones to see how they were getting on. And the parents of the children appreciated it, as well as the teachers. And, of course, the kids themselves were chuffed if Mr Hoffman was there. (laughs) Willie uh, was... Very interested in, in particularly he, he, I remember him talking to me about children who had fantastic sound, you know, really the makings of a great sound, a good bow arm. And uh, so he knew her, he knew children and he had such a memory that he'd actually remember dozens and dozens and dozens of children and how they played and, you know, what they were like. And he was very interested in, in music in that, in that respect, in that way. When, when Willie's father died, I think it was 1966, Willie moved. After that, he, he, he had actually bought the shop, bought the freehold of the shop, and he moved then to his home. Uh, at the time, I remember, he, he, he was supposed to have semi-retired, but in fact he never retired at all. He just wanted to get away a little bit so that he had some time to himself. And um, he, lived, he, he worked and, and lived uh, then in, in Sydenham Road in Ballsbridge, and subsequently he moved down to Kilpeter in Wicklow when they sold Ballsbridge, I think that was in 1987. I was at the time, I did serve a short time in the shop in London, learning restoration. Willie approached me then to open a workshop together in uh, Greystones. And we did that in the early 90s and we, we continued until 1998. And uh, then Willie more or less retired. You might say he semi-retired again. And uh, he went back to his, his, his workshop in Kilpeter. And I moved down to my workshop. So that was his kind of, that was the, the, the run of the thing. Well, I actually don't think Willie ever retired. I don't think so. Because I used to go down to him from time to time and for a man that was supposed to be retired, I'm sorry I couldn't say that he ever retired. Well, Willie might have tried, but I don't think the clients (laughs) believed it. In fact, not until there was the grand finale when uh, a group of his clients got together and organised a proper retirement party in Marion Square. That was wonderful because even the people who had left the country, they were all there. It was a wonderful tribute, marvellous evening. 
Yes, I, I saw Willie during his illness and as it got worse and he was less able to get around and that it was very sad to see this happening but uh, he'd had a, a good life and he'd helped an awful lot of people both uh, professionals and amateurs in the music scene so it was a very, very good life he had. Over the last 10 years, I suppose, Willie began to slow down and, and, and a life of, of um, dust and smoking uh, had caught up in his lungs and he had, he had been asthmatic from a very young age so he, it became more and more difficult for him to work at all and uh, when he retired over the last few years his emphysema got worse and, and uh, his, he had bronchial asthma I think and um, eventually he, he died in May of this year and he was 73 but for years he'd been slowing down so that he couldn't work anymore and even when we worked in Greystones I, I remember finding him standing outside in the bottom of the stairs finding it hard to get up the stairs you know This was the workshop that Willie started up here in Way Cottage after we moved from Sydenham Road um, and he brought his father's workbench but got himself a new one um, and that in fact that's the second one that's in here because he was working here for a while and then Connor joined him when he came back from London and they were both together in um, Greystones and they were there I think for about six years and it was after that then that Willie decided that he better retire but in the meantime uh, Robert Pierce, the bow maker has fallen in love with this bench and he wants to have it so it will be still staying in Ireland because it's going to Robert's house that he's preparing for his retirement. So um, I'm glad it's going to him because he was a cellist in the orchestra and that's how his connection with Willie. So I'm glad this will be still staying with the vague Hoffman connection. Oh gosh, Willie was a very important person. I mean, he looked after everybody in, in the whole of Ireland. And all the convents, I think he had uh, nearly all their instruments too. And people sort of looked on him and, and sort of felt confident that he was there, that they know they, they had somebody to go to and knew what they were talking about, you know. So he's, he'd be sadly missed, really. You know, although at the same time, life goes on, we know, and there are young people coming on, probably, hopefully will take over, you know. But he, but he, he will be missed as a, as a person as well. As Willie got older and he'd be walking round with his oxygen cylinders on, I can see him in Greystones and it must have been like what Uncle Michael was like in Cork with the cap tilted on the Kildare side of his head and the oxygen cylinders uh, down in front and his stick and the angle. I mean, he used to cut a dash in Greystones. (laughs) It's true to say that he, he himself and his father kept generations of fiddle players on their own in Ireland, literally, on their own for years and years and years, virtually on their own. There were, there were a few other people uh, making and repairing fiddles, but they kept generations. And the turnover of the business, I mean, not the turnover, money turnover, but the amount of fiddles that they brought in and did up and sold at very affordable prices, really, was astonishing. It's astonishing to look at the stock books and see kind of 16 fiddles in one month brought in refitted and and sold and that wouldn't be exceptional at all you know so he he kept an awful lot and they they you know years ago they ran a higher purchase scheme where people could pay for their children's fiddles 
on a weekly basis, you know, a shilling a week or, or whatever. And uh, they kept a ledger and, and um, that's how a lot of fiddle players got their first fiddle, you know. Well, first of all, he's a gentleman. And up to the very end, he had a fabulous sense of humour. Really, you know, I, I suppose I could tell you stories, but they wouldn't be suitable for the radio. But he, he, he had a great sense of humour all the time. All the time. And would be always willing to listen to your sense of humour too. So that was where I enjoyed him. And I think he probably enjoyed me. Thank you.